That's Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. It's the story of the prodigal. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. But his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. So, I don't know about you, when I'm trying to read, get, and understand this thing called the Bible, it can be, it can be hard at times. Uh, so, one of the things that's helped me sort of think through the Bible and, and understand it, apply it to life, is seeing the Bible in three ways. Seeing the Bible as a window, seeing the Bible as a painting, and seeing the Bible as a mirror. First, the Bible is a window. The Bible is a a panoramic window into another world, an author, an audience, actions that we get to behold. And our role in looking at Scripture then is to, to sit back, look through the window at God's story, and to take notes at all the scenery. But the Bible is also a painting. Uh, It's crafted with purpose, style, symmetry. And our role in examining a piece of art is to record all the connections through, through patterns and contrasts and relationships. And doing this helps us make sure that we're not missing anything in that painting, in that piece of art. But the Bible is also a mirror. As God wrote down his story, it wasn't just their story or those people's story. It was also and is also ours. 
that as we read these pages, it's a mirror reflecting back ourselves. And we tried to show you guys this over the last few weeks of this series, that this is a mirror. But perhaps nowhere does God so clearly hold up a mirror to our faces as in this parable, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about grace, which is the third and so far greatest chapter in God's story. But this parable is first a mirror held right up to our face. And you may recall last week we saw ourselves in a man named Jehoshaphat, who was righteous, though very much flawed. God was helping him, but not complete and totally helping him in the way that we're helped now through Jesus Christ. And so Jehoshaphat experienced as did hundreds of examples in the Old Testament, Jehoshaphat experienced what we all need to acknowledge, and that is our total inability to do what's right and to change what's really deep down flawed in us. We just have to throw up our hands and admit it. Jehoshaphat was unwilling to do that. Jesus uses this gripping story to tell us of of two extremely common most common responses to our total inability, to that frustration of, God, why can't I do this right? And so we get two responses to that feeling, to that knowledge, a younger brother and an older brother. And in these two, Jesus means for us to hold up a mirror and see ourselves. So the first role in God's story that we're supposed to see here is we get to find ourselves, find myself in his story. To have the courage to see yourself either in the younger brother or in the older brother. The youngest brother distances himself from the father because he wants to run his own life. He wants to be self-ruled. Prodigal, it's an interesting word. It's the word that heads the top of the, the, the passage there in your Bible. It's a word that means wastefully extravagant or having spent everything. And that's what the younger brother does. He spends everything. In this case, he spends his father's very life. But the father isn't dead, so what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. The younger son asks his father for his share of the property, right? And we find out that in verse 12, and he, the father, divided his property between them. The word translated there, his property, tone beyond, means literally his life. And this not may not make sense to us because it probably only makes sense to people in a totally agrarian society like the one in which Jesus lived and preached. This would make sense. A man's life is so tied to his land, to his property, in a way that maybe only a fourth-generation corn-husking Nebraskan would know, or a, or a sheep farmer from Karoo, or, or a mango-farming East Ender would understand that my life is tied to this land, and if I lose this land, my life is gone. That land, that property, wasn't supposed to be divided until the father died. And it's very clear in God's law, what happened is the older brother got half of the property. So actually, I take that back. The older brother got two-thirds. The younger brother got half of what the older brother got, so one-third of that property. So, but to go up and request of the father the property ahead of time is an incredibly detestable and shameful act. It was the equivalent of looking the father in the face and saying, you know what, I'll go ahead and take your life because I want to live mine now. This is say, I want you dead so that I can finally live. I know of one guy who was sharing this parable in Cambodia, and he asked his audience how a father would have responded had a Cambodian son 
came up to him and made this request to get his inheritance ahead of time. And they basically said he would be immediately beaten for it. Immediately beaten. And if the father, if the family had any wealth whatsoever, that dad would have taken out an ad in the paper to publicly disown his son. And that is probably what we should expect from the father of this story in this Middle Eastern culture. But this is a father who'd rather have his kids make their own choices, even if it breaks his heart. It turns out that he wants to be loved freely, not because his kids have to, but because his kids want to. What's the younger brother's motivation in doing this? Like I said, it's self-rule. It's to run his own life. He wants out of his father's house, out from under his father's expectation and family household rules, away from his older brother's shadow, right? That good older brother always does the right thing, can't handle it anymore. And he thinks freedom will be found if finally I'm in charge. I'm autonomous. I'm doing my own thing, making all my own choices. He's a little bit like the fish out of water, right? The fish who thinks, if I can just escape this water, I'll finally be free, flops out, and what happens? He just dies. But he thinks he'll be free. So he goes on a basically Amsterdam-style bender, recklessly wasting his father's very life on himself. So he truly goes prodigal. Jesus is trying to describe here, again, one response to the futility and frustration of sin. When we face sin, and we, can't, we keep on messing up and doing wrong when we want to do right, one response is just to give up. The boy feels that he can never please his father, so he might as well just please himself. That old country song goes. He might as well just leave the security and the love of his home so he can make all his own decisions and self-rule his life. How does it play out for him? Famine hits. It always does. Always does. Hard times always come. Especially, in fact, hard times are like God's PA system shouting to us to get the attention of self-ruled, stubborn sons and daughters. And it works in this case. And you know, a lot of people make the mistake here of, of saying that this is a story of a lazy brother versus a disciplined brother, a wanderer versus a worker. That is simply not the case. The youngest, in fact, he doesn't resort to welfare when things go bad. He works hard. It's just that it's for pig feed. Right? Then, then he goes to work on a very well-conceived restitution plan. Part one is what? I'm going to humble myself, say sorry, grovel even. Part two is make the request. Okay, I've really messed up. Just make me like another one of your hired servants. Because at least they eat pretty well. All the while wondering, how can I possibly pay back an entire life squandered? That's what I've squandered here. When, when I first heard this parable as a young man and continued to hear it, I was always so heartbroken for the older brother. Because there's something about him that, you know, you relate to him. You're like, man, he's doing the right thing. And I've always been one of those people, I have to admit, that when I watch like a, a movie, a television show, or read a book, and something embarrassing is going to happen to someone, I like turn the channel. I did this the other day. Katie and I were watching me like, let's turn the channel. This is, he's about to make a bad choice. I don't want to see it. And, and you're like that with the older brother. Older brother, if you could just make that one choice to lay down your pride and go in and join the party, this story would have a happy ending. It's just a, that one moment 
If it could just be different, all would be well, but I've come to see it that that is naive, that it was never going to happen, that the older brother drifted far further from the father than just one decision on whether to go or stay out of a party. So the younger son, at least, at least when he asks his dad to essentially end his life, he addresses his dad as such. He says, Father, give me my share of this inheritance, verse 11. The older son just says, look, these many years. The first thing he says to his dad is, look, these many years. And that's, that's going to be, maybe not sound so offensive to us who are Gen Xers or millennials who talk to our parents like, hey, you're just my bud, my friend. What's up, dad? Right? Like that's kind of our thing. We're willing to do that. But for this culture, for you to see your dad for the first time, maybe in an entire day and say, look, this son of yours, incredibly disrespectful. He does the same thing, by the way, with his brother. He treats his brother as such, verse 30. He doesn't even call him his brother, does he? When this son of yours came, right, he, you can see his heart is already distanced from his family. There's no, there's no warmth there. There's no closeness. This isn't just one decision of laying down his pride. This has been a long decision of distancing himself from the family. If the younger brother wasted the father's life, the older brother wasted the father himself. His nearness the father who was always close. He says, hey, but you never even gave me a young goat. And based on his father's later reply, saying, all I have, though, is yours, it becomes clear he didn't have the young goat because he never asked. He never asked. He never drew near enough to the father to ask for the goat, to ask for that little party with his friends. There was never that kind of closeness in their relationship. Remember the second part of the younger brother's two-part speech? The first part was humbling himself. The second part was, treat me as one of your hired servants. The older son, notice, echoes this in verse 29. These many years I have served you. That's literally, doulos, I have slaved for you. He's not a son. He's always been a servant, never a son. He is service ruled. He spent his life laboring as a servant, trying to, to earn what can only be given. And so he gets angry when he sees this lavish display of grace, of this, this giving back, all this inheritance, all the father has, giving it back to the son, the best things he has. And we're, we're told bluntly he was angry about this and refused to go in. Why would someone get so angry about grace? Why would someone hate grace? Grace is like the best thing. And the main reason is grace shatters every attempt to keep the Father at arm's length. As long as you can say to God, you owe me. God, you really owe me. I've kept the Sabbath. I tithe. I give to charity. At least I'm better than my younger brother. Then you know, you kind of owe me. I'm kind of a good example for you. If that's your attitude, then you don't actually need the Father, do you? You don't need to be near him. And yet, you still kind of expect his blessings. How many of us see ourselves in the older brother, I wonder? You serve well, especially when compared to other people. You do the right thing. And so you expect God to answer your prayer, to keep your family and your marriage together, and and generally just kind of dish out to you the good life, yet you are distant from your dad. And that, by the way, is by your design. You planned it that way. The irony is that both children keep 
the father at arm's length. One, just through running away, ruling his own life. The other, not through his badness, but through his goodness. Isn't that ironic? He keeps the father at arm's length, not because of his badness, but because of his goodness. I'm good enough to keep you away, God. So you can stay out in your field. You can keep working away at your life, never knowing what it means to really celebrate. So having held up this mirror, part of what we need to do is admit I'm either a self-ruled person doing what I want. When I want, I tend to make my own rules, or you're a service-ruled person. You can almost divide the world in this way. Younger brother, older brother. But that's not the only factor keeping these boys, keeping the father at arm's length for these boys. There's one other factor. Sin is part of the equation, but so is deception. That ancient serpent we first met in the garden deceives. He has got us misthinking, misperceiving who God really is, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. We can't see clearly who God really is. And this comes to our second role in God's story, which is to find the Father. Find the Father, especially in this story. Now, later in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells the parable of the mina, or the talents. And the story focuses on one particular man who doesn't do anything with the talent, with the life God has given him. Essentially, he de facto wastes that life. And his reasoning is this. He says this in Luke chapter 19, verse 21. I was afraid of you, master. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. The master is a severe man. So I better do what I want with my life. The view here is is God is inflexible, inscrutable. He's all business. He only wants his good and what brings him glory, not our good. He's not thinking about us, what's best for me. Jesus came to completely blow that out of the water. He, He came to reveal to us once for all who God is. And so during his entire ministry, it's no coincidence that he calls God Father. Father, Father. In fact, when we catch a glimpse into his native Aramaic speech, we actually hear him address God as Abba. Jesus would have grown up like any Jewish young boy. He would have to pray this prayer called the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Yahweh. And this word, God's name, I am who I am, Jesus, like all Jews, would have taken great care even pronouncing God's name. Jews didn't actually say or write out the name of Yahweh. They would abbreviate it. And so we get in, these, in the Psalms, hallelujah. Yah is short for Yahweh. Because he never wrote out Yahweh. Or people would actually write out the name of God and they'd leave out the vowels. Y-H-W-H. Why is that? Because God is so other than us. He's so unfamiliar with us. He's so distant from us. So for Jesus to call the creator Abba was absolutely scandalous to the religious people. You did more than just say God's name. You called him Abba. This was a Jewish colloquial term for a little child to address their father. It's like when a father was to walk in from a long day's work and the four-year-old would say, Abba, Abba, Abba. Or when you wake up, any kids are out there, you wake up your, your dad in the way too early in the morning and you just jump on this bed and say, Abba, Abba, Abba. Like we'd say, Daddy, Daddy, this is the kind of term Jesus used. 
basic syllables, so it's easy for a child to say, much like it's easy for us to say dada or daddy. God's name couldn't be written or pronounced. Jesus says, actually, I know him as Abba. He was teaching us that we too can know God as Abba in a carefree, safe, intimate, and happily dependent kind of relationship. More than anything else, this relationship is characterized by grace, by celebration. Grace is love made active through an undeserved gift. It's a dad who loves his child and then acts on it. Doesn't just write him Hallmark cards or little notes, but he acts on that love. And we see here in our story five life-altering acts. Look in verse 20, if you would, with me. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Grace, 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 grace. First, he saw the son. This indicates that the father was looking for him every day while the boy was away. He sat on his porch and he looked out and he never gave up hope. My son will come home and I'm going to spend every day out here looking for him. He also felt compassion for him. It's pretty cool. This is a Greek word. This is a fun fact for you. You can use dinner parties. Name, this Greek word felt compassion is splaknazomai. Splaknazomai, splaknazo. Just fun to say. But it means something much deeper. It means a longing from the bowels. So when he saw his son, he felt something deep in him. When this boy came into town, he would have done so through one entrance, because there would have been a city wall with one entrance to protect the town, one main road, houses tightly packed together in the city walls, meaning that everyone stopped, and everyone was seen and stopped to watch this boy who had the nerve to return to his dad after what he did. He looks a shell of his former self, emaciated from hunger. He smells like pig slop. He's hanging his head in shame, doesn't want to look at anyone, bracing for the villagers to insult him, even beat him, which would have been customary. And when he finally got home, he's probably thinking, okay, my dad's going to be on the farm. What am I going to say to him, of course? He's going to be doing the father's business. But wait, could it be? My dad, is that my dad? He's running to me. One scholar notes that in the Middle East, uh, a man at his age, the father's age, and his position always walks in a slow, dignified fashion. In fact, he says it's safe to assume this father has not run anywhere for 40 years, and now he races. To do so, he must take up the front edge of his robe like a teenager, and when he does this, his legs show in what's considered a very humiliating posture. But he knows what his son will face in the village, so he takes upon himself the shame and humiliation due to the prodigal. And so he runs, because he loves the boy. He embraces him, he kisses him. And I'm not even getting to the sandals, the ring, the robe, the fatted calf, as the father lavishes grace upon the son. Jesus offers us a relationship with his Abba, one characterized by grace. When confronted with this possibility, younger brothers, you have to ask the question, would I rather belong than be free? And I put free in air quotations. Would I rather belong or be free? Of course, it's an illusion of freedom. The younger brother's self-rule really turns out to just being ruled by reckless living. And the law of diminishing returns happens until he gives over rule to swine as his closest dinner companions. 
And so it is for all of us who seek freedom from God. We give ourselves over to lesser, lesser pleasures than God to, to rule us until they no longer satisfy us. And we try to move on from money, from sex, from influence, from success, or from our success being what really gives us happiness. And no one doesn't satisfy us. The Father is saying to us, come and belong to me. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. And to older brothers, he asks this question, would I rather be loved or be right? Would I rather be loved or be right? So in this, this parable, it's actually a series of three parables. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And if you look down at the first two verses of Luke 15, we'll see the reason Jesus tells this parable. Look at Luke 15, chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, older brothers, religious people, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners. He eats with them. To eat with someone was to say, I accept you as you are and love you as you are, and so I invite you to this table. Jesus tells this parable, parable of the lost son, more for older brothers than lost sons. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to older brothers. So in our story, the father goes out to the older son. He risks humiliation, in this case too, because he's abandoning his dinner guests. He's saying, forget you guys. I love my older son. I'm going to go see him also. And that's no matter to the father because the son also is lost. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Some of us here either don't get or we really just don't like grace. That God forgives time and time again any who would trust Jesus and sort of carte blanche, unconditional promise. But that gives people a license to sin and to run their own life. Not realizing it's grace that actually changes people. It's grace that made the younger son stop and not complete his well-thought-out plan. He can't get to it because the father's love overwhelms him. So what about you? You out in the field, still working, laboring, deserving, taking solace that at least I'm right. The father's reaching out to you also, and he's saying, can't you see that you are my lost son, my lost daughter? You, you are good enough to keep me at arm's length, but you'll never know me as Abba, as your father. And I know older brothers will cry out, but how is that fair? How is it, quote-unquote, fitting to celebrate and be glad for all this ruin that's caused? And that's a fair point. Fairness is a fair point. So let me explain, which is going to come here in our third role in God's story, which is to find others. Third role in this story is to find others. Now, you may have noticed in our parable that there's really no role for Jesus. We have an older son, a younger son. We have the father. Where is Jesus? He is absent, but he's noticeably absent. Let me explain. Remember I said this parable was a series of three, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. In all cases, something's lost. In the first parable, a shepherd searches after a lost sheep till he finds it. When he finds it, celebrate. A woman loses her special coin, so she searches for it. She finds it. When she finds it, she celebrates. But in this story, no one searches, and that's purposeful. We are meant to read this story and think, wait a minute. In these other two stories Jesus just told, there was a search party. Where is the search party here? Who should have gone out and searched for the lost son? 
This theologian named Edmund Clowney tells the story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier, and he went missing in action during the Vietnam War, an awful war. When his family got no word of him through any official channel, the older brother flies to Vietnam. The oldest brother flies to Vietnam, and he risks his life. He searches through the jungles, through the, the North Vietnamese communist battlefields for his lost brother. And it's said that despite this great danger, he was never hurt because both sides had heard of his dedication and respected this quest. So no one touched him. Some of them actually just simply called him the brother. In this parable, the elder brother, he's the obvious choice to go and search for the lost boy. But he would have had to do so at his expense. Remember, the father divided the property. Every last dollar now belonged to the elder brother, who didn't wish up to give a penny, give up one penny for this undeserving sinner. But Jesus does not put a true older brother in this story one willing to pay any cost to seek and save what is lost. There's something we all respect about the other brother, right? I mentioned it earlier. He's living rightly, but he's so deeply flawed without love and mercy. But by putting an older brother in this story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and long for a true older brother, one both righteous and radically forgiving, who lives a just life but mercifully uses his life to serve someone else. Friends, Jesus is our true older brother. It's Jesus. Hebrews 2.17 confirms this. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, like us. We are his brother. He's our brother. And he had to be made like that to what? Make it fair. God takes his own medicine. Jesus put aside all dignity, honor, power, fairly due to him, and he shares it with us. 2 Corinthians 8.9 puts it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus gave up his share of the property and inheritance, his tone beyond, his life, so that we might have life. So, so for all those here who trust Jesus more than self, more than service, the true older brother has found you. And he found you so you could be restored forever to his family and most importantly to your Abba. He also found you so you can find others. Jesus is our true older brother so we can imitate him and be older brothers to others. So we can go on the search party and look. All who have trusted Jesus have God of the universe on our side so much that we're on Abba speaking terms with him. So we are rich. Let's spend ourselves, our life, our inheritance to find others and bring them into God's story. So for you, are you spending your treasure, spending your best to spoil those who are lost at your dinner table or out somewhere nice for dinner? Are you using your wealth to support works and ministries that are trying to reach others with the good news about Jesus? Are you spending your talents? Are you trying to glorify God with your example? Are you trying to serve his people and his kingdom with what makes you distinct? Are you spending your time developing relationships with others so that you can share his story with them? That we have this creator who made us to enjoy this whole world and forever experience a relationship with him. However, all mankind has fallen. Each has turned to his own way, doing his own or her own thing. And despite our best efforts to start doing the right thing, we just can't over and over again. We just keep messing up and failing, and it's so frustrating. You ever wonder why that is? It's because, damn, we can't change the flaws that we so desperately want 
to change before God. But Jesus, guys, he tells us a story that God wants to be your dad anyhow. He waits for us every day. He waits for you to come home. You don't have to clean yourself up to do that. You can even smell like pig slop. He will clothe you with a robe of righteousness made possible by Jesus himself. Let's pray. Abba, Father. God, it's so good to be able to call you that. Father, I, I would ask this morning that every person here would know you as their Abba, as their Father, as the one who is waiting on the front porch for them to come home. Father, please help us be honest with ourselves that we're either like a self-ruled child wanting to do things our own way and our own time, and the problem with this world is that people get in each other's business and they don't let people live their own lives and they care too much about morality and conformity. Help us confess that God, it's far better to belong than to be, quote-unquote, free. Father, for those of us who are service-ruled, who kept you at arm's distance, because we know, we believe that we're good enough, we're righteous enough, that we don't really have to have our intimate, close relationship with you, but do enough good so we can get all the blessing. But it's a lie. That cannot happen. Help break down those walls. Help us see for the first time that it is far better to be loved and accepted than to be right. Help us lay down our pride and run to you, Father, so that we in turn can be that older brother that you've been, Jesus, and go out and find others who need to be found. Help us with this. In your name we pray. Amen.